welcome to the St. Enlands podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Buddy. And this is another Critical Appraisal Nugget. So a little short introduction into some of the concepts that you'll have when you're reading papers and when you're trying to do your Critical Appraisal exam. Rick, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about blinding today. Now, blinding is a bit controversial. I am married to an ophthalmologist. She doesn't like this. And I think we might want to use the word masking, although in reality, most people use this term blinding. Is that fair? I think most people do use the term blinding, but if you're more comfortable with masking, that's also fine with me. And you might find both terms in the literature. If you do, don't worry about it. We're going to be talking essentially about the same sort of thing. Blinding is what in a clinical trial? Blinding is a process by which we make sure that people don't know which group they've been allegated to in a therapeutic trial. So this is the easiest thing to think about with therapeutics, definitely. So we're talking about giving drug A, giving drug B, giving therapy A, giving therapy B. And the idea is that people won't know what they're getting. In a drugs trial, for instance, I might be deciding to give you an anticoagulant or a placebo. How would I not know what's going on? Well, that's why we need to use the placebo, don't we? That's why we use a placebo. And the idea is that the patient shouldn't know whether they're getting the anticoagulant or the placebo. That's single blinding. The patient doesn't know what treatment they're getting. We need to think about how we're going to make sure the patient is actually blind. The anticoagulant and the placebo need to look the same. If it's an oral medication, they need to taste the same. They need to smell the same. If the anticoagulant makes your wee a funny colour, the placebo also needs to make your wee a funny colour. We need to think about all of those things to really ensure that the patients don't know which group they've been allocated to. From a sensory perception perspective, it needs to be the same. So they wouldn't know, labelling, all that kind of stuff. That's single blinding. But we can go further than that, because what about me as the physician or the researcher? Well, that does introduce an important bias if the doctor knows which treatment group the patient's been allocated to. It might change your approach to that patient, might influence some of the clinical findings that you record. So it is also important to blind the people treating the patient. And also the people who might be doing some form of assessment of the patient as well. So I might be the person who's allocating the treatment and that might, if I knew what they're on, that might influence what I do with them. For many trials, they'll be assessed for their, say, function after a period of time or somebody will looking at the notes to find out what happened to the patients. If they know as well what the patients have, they might make subtle judgments and changes about whether it was a good or not so good outcome. Absolutely, because not all of the outcomes that we look for in clinical trials are totally objective. It's not just, for example, mortality that we're looking at. We might be looking at a measurement, for example, that we make with a patient in a clinic. If we know what treatment group the patient's been allocated to, it might make us subtly a bit more biased to where we go with that measurement. So the person doing the analysis who is evaluating the outcomes and even doing the statistical analysis should also be blinded. And that becomes triple blinding. The third level is I might actually, as a researcher, collect the data and then send it on to statistical analysis. But the person doing that analysis may not even know which patient had the active drug. And that goes off, has a statistical analysis, comes back to me and tells me that this group did better than the other group, although we're the same. And only then would it be revealed whether it was actually the intervention group or the control group which had the effect. And I've seen a number of trials where that's been done. That's an incredibly powerful way of avoiding the bias because even when you're doing the analysis of the statistics, your innate preferences and beliefs might influence how you handle the data. We might have had an analysis plan in the protocol, but we all know that 
when it comes to that phase, sometimes things change a little bit. We have to change our approach to the analysis because the data weren't what we expected or there was another confounder. If we know what treatment group the patients have been allocated to, then there is an important bias there. Again, as we talked about in the randomization podcast, we've got to look at these with the things with a suspicious eye. There are some really interesting projects around. Bender Goldacre is doing a project looking at exactly this, about whether people do their analysis in the way that they said they would do. We know some great people like Paul Young and colleagues out of New Zealand who are very keen that they publish their statistical analysis plans in advance and really rigidly apply them. So there are clues out there and you might see it in the paper. You might have to look at the supplementary data if you really want to get into this. But you should be looking for this all three levels of masking. However, quite a few of the things we do. It's not possible to do that. In this pure drug trial that we talked about before, you can do this wonderful placebo. The allocation is concealed to the doctors and to the patients and to the people doing the analysis and doing the assessments. Wonderful. What if I want to do something like compare a wrist splint with a plaster, POP? That's not going to work because everybody's going to be able to see. So in those circumstances, that's where we have to be pragmatic. And pragmatic trials are really popular these days. Unblinded pragmatic trials are actually a good way forward for many different things. So you talked about a plaster cast versus a wrist splint. It's impossible to blind people to those allocations unless you put the whole arm in some kind of device that means we wouldn't be able to see it. I've got the idea now of a dog collar, you know, those big white cones that they put around. You could have that on the elbow. But no, I don't think that's going to work as a, as a concept. It's not going to pass ethics, is it? So it's just not possible. That's right. And we did a trial in our group with the amazing Dan Horner, the great Hornero, which randomised patients with calf DVT to warfarin or no anticoagulation. And the question was, should we have blinding in that trial? You could say, of course you should. You should have a warfarin or a placebo. But then if you have warfarin, you have to have your treatment monitored. You have to come back to anticoagulant clinic. You have to have your INR checked. Your dose is changed as a result of the results of your blood tests. How do you do that for a placebo group? And we talked for a long while about whether we could run sham anticoagulant clinics. Even the patients on placebo get blood tests. We don't tell them results. We just tell them to subtly change the amount of placebo they might be taking. So they really wouldn't know. But in the end, we thought that this was almost becoming unethical. So we took a practical approach and ran it pragmatically. And there wasn't blinding. And just remind us what the outcome was. The outcome was that actually the patients with a calf DVT had a tendency towards benefit with anticoagulation, but it was just a pilot trial. And although we approached statistical significance, we didn't reach it. So it does mean that that trial was useful, even though it was not blinded, which is important. So there is good stuff that comes out there. Some of the attempts to mask patients and the clinicians and their assessment can go really quite a long way. And I suppose the the best examples of this that you might see are things like sham surgery. Yeah, this is where we think that it's so important to maintain blinding for a surgical procedure, for example, that the patients who are assigned to the non-intervention group might even undergo general anaesthetics, have an incision, have that repaired, but haven't actually undergone any surgery whatsoever. And the patient didn't know that. Which is, you know, just incredible. And I take my hat off to the patients and it's it's the patients who give their time and their health and their goodwill to make us better clinicians and better researchers and to make healthcare better. So blinding or masking, depends what you want to call it, is really important in therapeutic trials. In diagnostic trials, do we see it as well? It's very important that whoever adjudicates the outcome 
is blinded to the results of the index test because again there could be a bias introduced there if you know that the patient let's say had a positive test that we're evaluating maybe it's a d-dimer test if we know what the d-dimer level is when we look at the ctpa perhaps it's going to influence whether we call that a PE or not a PE. So, for instance, we could see a high D-dimer and look for much longer because we think there might be a PE there or see a low D-dimer and just have a cursory look because we think there isn't going to be one. It's really important, that blinded gold standard in diagnostic studies. And it appears in other sorts of studies as well, but those are the big ones that I think you'll come across. In summary, blinding or masking, depends what you want to call it, I don't mind, you'll see in many papers you look at. It's very important in diagnostic and therapeutic papers. And the three bits you're going to look at is whether the patient's have been blinded, whether the people giving the treatments and doing the assessments are blinded, and whether the analysis is blinded. Ideally, all of that will take place. Pragmatically, not always. Sometimes you won't be able to do that, but you should see some clues that the authors and the researchers have at least thought about how to do it and done the best that they can. And that's the question you're asking in critical appraisal. Could this have been done better? And if not, you kind of have to accept it as what you see. If it could have been done better, it's a little bit of a red flag. So, blinding, masking, excellent stuff. Think about it more. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.